Hello, my name is Matthew McDermott. I am a senior writer for Resident Advisor. This is the first Zoom exchange that I participated in, and I am speaking virtually with Afriqua, the alias of Adam Longman Parker. Hey, Adam, how's it going? It's going well, man. How are you? Nice to see you. Looking good. Nice to see you as well. You look great as always. I, I remember, you know, running into you in a taco restaurant in Mexico City and thinking, that guy looks cool. And then and then you said, hey, how's it going? Like, you're, you're very, very friendly. Um, you're not in Mexico City right now. Um, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in my crib in Charlottenburg in Berlin. Cozy, got a... 4K recording of a fireplace on my TV, some uh, English breakfast tea to kind of keep me awake, and yeah, just kicking it. Well, I appreciate you hopping on the line here at uh, around 9.30 p.m. Uh, Charlottenburg, one of the best places to get Chinese food in Berlin, but otherwise a little bit off the beaten path, correct? Uh, Yeah, I mean, but it's coming up. I mean, I think it's like... It's always been probably like the nicest neighborhood in the city. But I think now that all of the other parts are being sort of filled, like uh, a lot of the expats and also a lot of the original sort of Berliners are, I think, uh, finding a new appreciation for Charlottenburg because it's off the beaten path of like uh, dance music events and maybe like youth culture, but it's just super beautiful. And it's it's definitely the place with like the most, let's say, authentic, long-standing restaurants and cool sort of uh, local businesses and stuff like that. So it's got a lot of charm. Yeah, I've, I, I have a lot of love for the leafy streets of Charlottenburg, for sure. But um, when you initially moved there uh, before the unstoppable wave of gentrification reached this neighborhood, this was like a bit of a conscious de- decision on your part to not live in Kreuzberg or Kreuzkoln or, or not to be in the fray of what is typically thought of as expat Berlin club culture, correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I hit the ground running with club culture. And I also, I mean, it's not like I stopped clubbing, but I just by chance had a, when I first moved here, I had an Airbnb in Charlottenburg and I don't know, it, it was like I lived for a while, um, in Friedrichshain on Frankfurt Allee, which is like the worst fucking street in the world, honestly. I mean, it was a great place to live starting out, but it was really like, really, really stressful. And then when I was finally getting my own place, I was, I just kept thinking about Charlottenburg. And yeah, I was totally impractical and uh, as I still am, and (laughs) ended up moving far away from everything and everyone that I knew and did. So yeah, it was, um, but I, I'm really happy that I did in the end. It definitely gave me like a, a, u- a unique perspective on the city and it's nice to like see the whole city, you know? Like if you're gonna do stuff in the East, inevitably, it's nice to live in the West because then you definitely sort of get the entire sort of experience, which I've definitely cherished over the past, you know, six years, seven years. Absolutely. And and in terms of locking yourself away, on your Instagram, you refer to yourself as a producer, pianist, and party rocker. You know, having come from a classical background myself and not having gone as far with it as you have, 
the rigor to actually be a classical pianist, like it's it's minimum five hours a day. So I assume that at some point in your past, uh, coming from piano to club music, you you're used to locking yourself away and not really having like a social life in the traditional sense to sacrifice for music, correct? Yeah, it's um, I, I think the classical training, I mean, especially if you take it to it's, I mean, there, there are no theoretical limits of what you can, of how far you can take it. I mean, for the great, the great pianists, you know, it, it's their entire life is, you know, the repertoire and the, the canon of great piano compositions and stuff. But yeah, I, I think that no matter how far you get with it, it does instill some level of, you know, that, that correlation, uh, understanding of that correlation that you described, where it's just, you really do have to repetition is basically the the key to success isn't it i mean <laughs> with this kind of stuff so i mean it was very easy for me to apply that to any sort of musical activities that i get involved in uh just the idea it's probably more so that i think when you familiarize yourself with practice at an early age you don't feel so much you're not as afraid of mistakes, actually. I mean, I, I, I just make mistakes every day still. That, that's just my my morning routine is just wake up, make some mistakes, and try not to make them again tomorrow. But like when you, I think when you apply that for years, then you, you get very comfortable with kind of consistent iteration and experimentation. And it's easier to do that alone. That's That's for sure. <laughs> It's funny, uh, repetition is the key to success would apply to both uh, the practice rooms at conservatory as well as uh, the Romanian minimal scene, which has embraced your uh, <laughs> embraced some of your, your mid-career singles. Um, but that sort of gets to something that's interesting about your career. Like I always view you as somebody who comfortably or uncomfortably like rests in this kind of like in-between um, space where you are a black American artist who lives in Berlin. You are a classical pianist who is also a sick DJ and like a sick electronic music producer. You have like a background in b-boy music and soul and funk and disco and jazz and you have also thrived in stripped down dance music. How does it feel to be in between? Does that does that idea resonate with you? Well, I think that, you know, my understanding of music has always, I, I think the the best goal that I could that I can imagine with uh, my musical practice uh, is to try to bring together different, seemingly disparate scenes and people and ideas and cultures. And, you know, it's, I, I've always cherished this in-between state. I mean, it's not the most advantageous um, for selling music, but it definitely is the most advantageous for continually creating music because there's always something else to create, you know? And I think that, yeah, I mean, that, that creative tension, like actually finding a way to satisfy each part of me with each project... I mean, that's ultimately what keeps me interested in, in, you know, getting up and being in the studio every day, because there's just always something else to not resolve as if, as if there's something bad to kind of alleviate, but just there's something to resolve because there's just, there's something new to create, you know, like if you, I think if you're bringing a lot of different 
inspiration in that way. And you're friends with a lot of different people and you've been to a lot of different parties and a lot of different types of events and you listen to a ton of different music and stuff like that and you really identify with it all, then it's almost like by definition, there isn't something for you yet and you have to make it, you know? And I, I feel very, very inspired by that. And I think most of the music I love is also kind of coming from a similar place, you know? Yeah, I guess there is like this liminal space or this idea of like a limbo is traditionally thought of as this place of extreme creativity. But I, I've i listed a lot of facts about you already, and I kind of want to... I kind of want to run over your background a little bit. Basically, like, I understand that you're from Hampton, Virginia, which is directly across the Chesapeake Bay from Hampton Roads, um, this sort of crucible of 90s and 2000s rap music and innovative production. And you started DJing in elementary school. Like, if I had to... Speak about like the first three quarters of your life as though it was like a movie. It would be one of these like movies about a prodigy, like Shine or something like that. Like, I mean, like, how does it? Yeah, hopefully not Shine. Hopefully, hopefully you're not like uh, trying to play the Rock Five, like in like a freezing cold tower with gloves on. Like, hopefully it hasn't hasn't come to that at some point. But, dude, are you a prodigy? Do you identify with that? Um, not really, because I, I mean, I think I would say that I was definitely precocious in my interest, but I think that honestly, like the main thing that I attribute that to is my parents, you know, like they didn't, they just never put up a single barrier to me thinking about being an artist and they're not artists. Like they're, they're real estate people, you know, they love music and they, they love the culture and they just... They love, you know, they love me, they love their kids and they love the family. And like, I got it into my head, like at a very early age and they just never discouraged it once ever. And like, they didn't let other people discourage it. And I think that that's just like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically, I, I almost feel like anybody is a prodigy in, in those conditions. Uh, so I'm, I'm super grateful for that. But yeah, I mean, I was just kind of without those kind of barriers and then also just being kind of in the right place and time historically and also just, you know, I'm the youngest. So I have that really lucky situation of not only learning from all of my older brother's mistakes, but, you know, getting all of their good shit as well and all of their good records and all of the MP3s in the 2000s. And just, you know, like, you know, I met Pharrell through my older brother when I was like, 10 or something you know so like shit like that was really like it it puts you just in a headspace where you realize that something is possible and I mean I'm from like a really small city uh Hampton is in Hampton Roads by the way you know it, it's it's just so strange because it's like it's Hampton Roads it's just composed of basically it's a big area but it's not really composed of any particularly big cities uh, it's just not a big place in some way. Like as it's not New York, it's not Miami. It's it's just not it's not that. It's like a collection of suburbs. But it it has just produced such an incredible pool of talent, and you know it really inspired like a whole generation 
of kids like me who are growing up seeing people from our area and also people who look like us, you know, just killing it. And yeah, I mean, that was that was basically, or I guess that was the production and DJing side. And then piano was just like, just luck of the draw, literally, because my parents won a raffle <laughs> for, <laughs> for piano lessons. And I was already like obsessed with Michael Jackson and music and stuff. So when I was five, my parents got me like the sort of trial lesson that they won, or it must have been like two or three lessons, I don't know. And yeah, I mean, it just so happened that my teacher was very good. And like, even though my seriousness kind of fluctuated through my youth, I had good enough technical foundations to kind of pick it up relatively quickly when I did start taking it very seriously. So a lot of luck, but the biggest, the the luckiest thing is my parents, honestly. Well, that's a very humble answer. And I mean, like, I guess luck is the cliche is it's the intersection of like preparation and opportunity. And you had this amazing opportunity uh, when you were 16 to uh, attend Interlochen. And c- can you describe what Interlochen is? I just want to rattle off a few alumni, such as Jewel, Nora Jones. Uh, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to come up with like more embarrassing alumni, uh, alumnus to list, like Josh Groban, you know? Like, it's really like uh, Lauren Maisel and like... Um... I remember like discovering some amazing Japanese percussionist called Stomu Yamashita who went there as well. And like, it's really, I mean, for the, U- for the US kind of arts education system, I think Interlochen is definitely sort of the standard bearer. Uh, there are some other schools that are like that, but Interlochen's really been around since the early 20th century. And the founder of the school, I think his name was Joseph Maddy, if I'm not mistaken, but he actually ended up being a very influential sort of figure in, I think, just general like pedagogy, you know. Uh, and you can definitely feel like a solid philosophical uh, and just really forward-thinking approach to arts education there still. It's just a really, really wonderful place. And that was definitely the biggest like turning point of my life, I would say for sure. Because it was very much another just like right place, right time thing. My brother, I think knew about it because I think Sufjan Stevens went there or something. And I don't know why my brother, because he's also a dope musician, but like he didn't, he was like, you should apply, you know, which is just another like good big brother thing to do. (laughs) So I applied and like, I didn't even get in like the in the first sort of round or like maybe it was uh, the application was late or something. And then suddenly we got like a call and they were just like, hey, like we got an extra spot. Like, so just come, you know, obviously they were like pay, but like (laughs) it wasn't like just come. But yeah, it was really it just opened my mind to like a whole different level of musical possibilities just in terms of seeing other kids like who are that good i mean that shit will like fuck you up you know honestly it's like it feels like you're getting punched in the stomach the first time you like walk into a place where it's like the best people in the country that's different than like the best people in virginia or the best people in hampton or something so like that having that experience then really like switched me on to just a whole new sense of possibility 
about like what what could be done with work you know because like ultimately there's a lot of people who by that point had put in way more time than I had into the piano and it's you know it's super super inspiring to see that um at that time and I told my parents like very quickly like that I was staying there because you know they have (laughs) they have an academy uh during the year I was there for the summer program and I you know told my parents like guys like this is where I belong I need to like apply here and like come back here next year and like finish high school here and same tip you know like they were just like we don't want to see you go but like we gotta like make it happen I mean there was just no question so yeah that was definitely like the thing that that's really what put my it directed my sights outwards you know like and it wasn't like I was necessarily well no actually when I say it in retrospect I was very much a small town person actually I mean we would like drive sometimes to like New Hampshire or New York or something like that it's not like I was always in Virginia but like I just had no international foundation like we didn't grow up traveling or going on vacations and stuff like that outside of the country so it was really like the first time I met so many young people from around the world and it's definitely like what kind of poised me to yeah I think start looking at the world as a place that was a little bit more available I I really appreciate you sort of illuminating that experience how it came about and how you rose to the occasion as a young musician you know we know each other you're a pretty easygoing person so you'll have to excuse me using like the darkest silly comparisons possible but if if you're if if the first 19 years of your life are you know this like child prodigy movie then then you end up in london at the royal academy of music and then and then the movie of your life becomes like a club movie like enter the void or eden or something like that and you know like many who have come before you like ricardo in room one at fabric was like a uh that was a moment. Can you can you speak a little bit about like your perception of club music when you were at Interlochen versus what happened in London? Well, it was interesting because I was already DJing before I went to Interlochen, um, but I was doing like hip hop events, and I remember even playing like a super big party at my high school that was just privately organized by some kid, but it was like kind of the party like right before I the summer right before I left, like someone's graduation party or something. So I was already kind of like, and by the way, I was like gigging and stuff when I was a kid. It wasn't like I was just DJing as a hobby or doing battles. Like I was playing like, I think my first gig was like some girl's 11th birthday party when I was in like fifth grade or something, you know? So I've been kind of like on the circuit for a minute. Um, Real real quick, who were, who were like your DJ mentors at at that age, just out of curiosity? Like what, what were you playing on and like... Who were you looking up to? And my first setup was a, a was Gemini XL five hundred twos, a pair with like a Gemini mixer, and it came with two copies of Super Duck Breakbeats, which is like one of the I think one of the first Stones Throw records, maybe. Um, so they have a soft spot in my heart for forever. You know, <laughs> it's like my first vinyl I think that I ever bought. Yeah, then from there, you know, when my parents saw that I was serious about it they were willing to kind of like invest more and my mom to her eternal credit like kind of taught me some good business principles as well she was like i'll help you but like we're gonna like split the money from your gigs you know which was like nothing but it was just enough to like teach me some sense of accountability you know for their investment it wasn't just like a 
it wasn't a gift. I mean, it obviously was, but like for my 11 year old brain, it was a lesson. So then I was playing like, you know, what was on the radio then? Like Mario? I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I have like all of the old Star Trek records, you know, um, on like doubles on vinyl back home, like all of the all of the stuff Timbaland was producing at the time, basically all of the top 40 shit. Like it was kind of like I was doing the scratch DJ thing as one side of it. And then on the more kind of like mobile DJ, DJ as a business side, I was playing like, you know, top 40 radio and stuff, which just luckily was shit hot back then. It's still pretty good, but like back then it was, it was definitely on point. So yeah, I was kind of doing that or I was doing that then. And then at Interlochen, I kind of, saw that, you know, like I was, I felt like I kind of switched off DJing for a bit, but I still had a few experiences where I was kind of like getting into like blog house and stuff like that. I was listening to Crookers and like Boys Noise. I still love Boys Noise's first record actually. Um, and I was like listening to that kind of stuff. And I remember playing like a, like just DJing on Ableton, like uh, one of our like school dances at Interlochen. And it was amazing because it was like I think the first time a lot of people at least of the Americans had heard like what would turn into EDM and it was very like just that was kind of like a nice like um just a little preview I guess of what I was going to be doing (laughs) shortly thereafter but then you know I got to London and I wasn't even really thinking about DJing because obviously like you know it's such a level up in the classical music world to go from even from a school like Interlock into like the Royal Academy. I mean, that's like a big jump. That's really like entering the majors in some way. And I just wasn't really thinking about it. And then I, I kind of started getting into parties and I met like a group of friends who are still very close to me. Um, and they were sort of like aspiring DJs. I mean, I don't know if they were aspiring as much as like they were DJs, like that was sort of their hobby and we were all in university together. Um, and I kind of quickly discovered, of course, that like my DJ skills like were, I mean, like pretty passive. I mean, it's, it didn't take much time to, to get used to mixing even more metronomic music. Uh, so yeah, then it was just like really going through all of the, I mean, I'm sure most people have this experience, but like when I think about the stuff that I thought was like hot at the beginning, it's just like incredibly bad, you know. I of course won't say anybody's names, but I remember like a lot of stuff that I, I still have in my iTunes. And I'm just like, wow, like I listened to it as a reminder of like what I once was. But you know, I worked my way through like every trend, every artist, whatever. And then I think, yeah, the big sort of inflection point was definitely Perlon. I mean, that was like, that really opened my mind, I think, to how creative club music could be. And then I felt like Ricardo was like the best representative of that. And it's hard to look back at those experiences and know if it's like an objective memory because we were all just like fucked up. Like, I mean, it was just (laughs) totally, you know, it was like university, like, you know, parents money kind of like, uh, like irresponsibly ostentatious partying, like, you know, eat pasta all week, go to fabric kind of thing. And everybody I know uh, who, even the people who I only came to know at this stage of my life, everybody who was there like really 
felt that time in London. I mean, I don't think that I'm being overdramatic in, in saying that, as romantic as it sounds. Like, there was really, really something cool happening in London at that point when you could go see, like, Ricardo in room one at Fabric, when Fabric was still, like, popping, and, like, Ben UFO and Hessel Audio in room two, Terry Francis in room three, just, like, all, like, legends, you know? Like, you, in, just with a very, much more kind of open culture than London's become. So, yeah, that was definitely, like, where I think the potential, um, the potential really revealed itself to me. Because before that, I didn't take it so seriously. It was more like a hobby, you know? And I think that kind of hearing certain stuff, especially Perlon at that time, as I said, that really kind of, it gave me a sense that, like, this was a space in which important music could be composed. And uh, you sort of come to it with, like, this immense musical background, this training, these tools, obviously at some, and yeah, you can, you're like a battle DJ and a top 40 DJ. So like linking together uh, loopy minimal tracks that are made for long mixes is not something that is like extremely difficult to you at this point. So obviously it's just a matter of time before you start making your own tracks, correct? Well, I mean, I've been making beats since I was 12, you know. Oh, Afriqua came from, like, you came up with that name from a from a demo that you made with your brother, correct? Like in your... Yeah, it was like some Gucci Mane remix or something I made. <laughs> and Brian, my brother, uh, who produces really good music as Reuven, by the way, he, like, um, he was, we were just, like, high or something at home, like, in Virginia. And he's just like, we're just like, what's, like, the blackest name possible and we were just like africa shaniqua afriqua people still can't pronounce that shit as well i mean i did i'm i'm confused as to why but i'm glad we're putting it out there full disclosure i mispronounced it prior to uh prior to recording here but i guess i guess what i'm saying is that you've always made music production is just natural to you but you start to make an attempt at this loopy transportive sound correct yeah and that was definitely a it was a challenge i mean there there is something to be said as a producer i mean i would recommend for any producer anybody who's using uh any sort of daw or whatever machines to make music regardless of the genre to try to make i mean first of all try to make everything but i do think that there's something very specific that you learn from kind of operating in this loopy minimal space so to speak because basically like the sound design in the mix and kind of like the let's say resourcefulness uh is everything it's like if the sort of foundational idea is trash like you can't really you can't dress it up too much you know what i mean like nothing is going to make it work so I have a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of shit on my hard drive. <laughs> um, just really like, and it's funny to listen to. I mean, but the cool thing is like some, I have also have some tracks from back then that were just like, you know, it totally missed the mark of what I thought I was trying to make, but I listen to it now and I'm like, yeah, I could put this out like pretty happily now. I guess that's another thing to say about just like making a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Definitely. And you first sort of start reaching out with these 
initial dance floor productions like you uh you go on ra you look for some labels and you, and you were like i didn't have any baggage at this point i i think that that may have changed at this juncture eight eight years later but you sort of experience like an immediate an immediate response and I, I, what year is this exactly when you're like sort of like must have been 2011 like late 2011 early 2012 i was shopping stuff around like really like a loose cannon i mean just totally like the kind of like inconsiderate confidence that can only come from someone who's introducing their emails with like, I'm, I'm a 19 year old producer, like working, you know, <laughs> it's just like, uh, you know, it was, and it wasn't like, it wasn't particularly pushy. It was just sort of like, I didn't have any um, reservations about doing it. And for some reason, and I did see this as like a contrast with a lot of my peers at the time. And this is another thing I attribute to like, I guess like what my parents kind of instilled me with, but I just felt totally comfortable. Like, Hey, I'm trying to do this. I've got something I think here I've got to like share it with people. It just seemed natural to me to try to find like a label. Uh, and it was just, I can remember some responses like, you know, writing to like a Vladislav delay and his manager just being like, dude, we're not a fucking label, but like, if we were don't send us like, like wavs in an email like like, i'm just giving you some giving you some advice you know so i appreciated that and then like um also nick hopner wrote me back from askatun and the funny thing is i had no idea i'd never been to berlin i had no idea what bear kind was and i was just like yeah cool good good luck with your label i hope it works out with your artists but you know it was nice because he was just like yeah this is like really like it's got like good quality compared to what we normally receive and, you know, those little things go a long way when you're just getting started. So I, I still, I've never met him, but I do really appreciate that still. So that all led to, yeah, my first vinyl came out in 2012 on this label called Fat Music, which was like a dubstep, drum and bit, like just everything kind of like catch-all electronica label. So that was kind of where everything got started. Yeah. And then you end up in Berlin yourself. In 2000, in 2012, actually. Because I got kicked out of the academy. So it was like, it was weird because even with how supportive my parents are, I didn't tell them about the record. I don't, I don't know why. I, did, I just, just doing weird shit for some reason. I just didn't tell them. Um, and then it was like, you know, shit kind of hit the fan in my academic situation. And then I kind of like was just like, okay, guys, but like I did... <laughs> I did make this record. I've got a record out now. So I'm going to go to Berlin and like follow up on this idea. Uh, and I'm glad I kept that. I don't think it really would have mattered. They probably would have been cool either way. But it was just good to kind of get the conversation moving quickly. And yeah, to their eternal credit, they were just like, all right, let's do it. You know, and they supported me like in that first part. As long as I would have been like in university, you know. So I definitely can't take my hat off to my parents enough honestly you can just do the whole interview about them much respect to the parkers so how did it go like having a go of it in berlin like i mean from my perspective like the tracks that really began to connect came out in 2016 with like soul correction and and drive like being like major and like how did how did it all go for these like first few years like did you this ease of like getting in that uh, comes from a deep understanding of music and training and just uh, making a lot of shit, like in terms of getting an immediate response from labels. D- 
did you continue to have this kind of like charmed experience as it relates to like club music specifically? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've always felt lucky, honestly. Like I, I'm eternally optimistic and fortunately have not, I don't know, I've never felt particularly weighed down by generally negative ideas. And, you know, I, I, I've kind of felt like putting out that energy and like just taking every meeting and like being quite open-minded, meeting a lot of new people, interacting with a lot of new music. It like, it, it's always led me to my next opportunities, you know, and it still, it still works that way. It's just like, I, now it's even more, it feels even more kind of like magical because I'm less active actually. I'm not out. I'm not sort of like, you know, sending my music to people. My music is kind of like working for me in the background. But at that time, it was really like, you know, like the day before I left London, I was at this after hours where I met Seth, uh, Seth Troxler um, and his tour manager at the time, his tour manager uh, who was living in Berlin, Seth was already in London. He was like, he, he just told me tomorrow when you get to Berlin, hit me up. Like first thing you do, hit me up, you know. So got to Berlin, staying in my like Airbnb. I've never been to Berlin. I've never seen anything in Berlin. I don't know what the landmarks are. I just went, you know. I just somehow knew that it was cool. So I just came, you know, and hit up Eric. Uh, and yeah, like automatically was in my first kind of like network in Berlin. You know, I met everyone, a lot of people who I, so like my first industry contacts in terms of like other DJs and people who are like my heroes in the previous years, like within the first kind of like month or two. So it was pretty like, uh, I had a pretty good fast track situation. Uh, but you know, I think that also just comes from the fact that I was really putting in, it felt senseless at the time, honestly, I wasn't thinking about it strategically, but like I was partying so much in London that it really, I had already put in the groundwork for my life in Berlin, you know, loosely. Like I was like already in the right places where the people who I was hanging out with in London were people who came to Berlin and had friends in Berlin. And like, it just, it all had just happened very sort of naturally. Um, so yeah, serendipity has played a pretty large role <laughs> from the beginning, I would say. And who are you sort of initially embraced by as a producer and DJ at that point in those first few years? I know like Raresh was a big champion of the tracks that came out in 2016. Like, um, but yeah, coming from being really enamored with the Perlon sound and the artistry evident, the artistry and hedonism evident in the Ricardo sound, like is, is that like sort of the scene that you gravitate towards and initially embraces you. It's interesting because I've never been embraced by the scenes towards which I gravitate. <laughs> it's always been like a, or I, I don't know, I've never had that feeling of like, I'm into this and like they're into me. And we're like, you know, it's, it's more just like, and I think that's the cool thing about Berlin. It's like it very quickly made me realize, oh, like all of these kind of niches are sort of bullshit, like in terms of how socializing actually works uh, in the industry, you know, it's like, it's more like, who are your friends? Like who likes you enough to really like give your music the time to hear if there's something there to follow up on. Um, and I had a lot of like really 
kind of seemingly random people who just took a major interest in my work uh, at the beginning. Like, you know, at that same after party, I met like um, a guy called Eric Volta, who was like releasing years ago. I don't know what he's up to these days, but like he invited me to a studio at, at that place. I met Sebastian Voigt, who's like the booker at Renata and who works at, you know, uh, he was running Loki in London. And I also met one of my closest friends, Tom Gillerin, who's like one of the kind of like UK tech house. He's like, I always joke that he's like the unspoken UK tech house pioneer, you know. Um, and he taught me like, and continues to teach me just a ton of things that I've kept with me as a as a producer. Like, I mean, he really taught me how to mix records. He, he heard, I mean, the first time I went to the studio to meet, uh, just like to meet with those guys, he heard something in like just those earliest, most rudimentary demos where he was just like, this is just something. It's just something new, something different. And he just gave me like a ton of time, uh, just purely from his own generosity. And yeah, I'm another person to whom I'm extremely grateful because it's just like, those are the kind of things that, you know, looking back, I don't know. I can't imagine building on like, that time without that kind of insight it i'm sure i would have gotten those insights somehow but it does matter how you get it you know so i've always felt lucky that i i've been able to very naturally kind of pick up these more sort of like uh i guess advanced aspects of making music and just being an artist and stuff like that from people who are much more experienced and who you know just have a lot of time for me <laughs> so i've always had a lot of people like that and that, for instance, I would say my first real, like, turning point record was actually probably my Dream Diary record. And that's Tom Gillerin's label. Uh, and that wasn't, like, that record wasn't popping, like, the next ones. But it was, that was the first time when I had people, like, hitting me up, like, hey, like, Raju's playing a record in New York. Or, like, Move D played this at this festival and shit like that. And that was just like, you know, that was really the first record where in general, I kind of felt like it wasn't like the other ones weren't getting some support, but I didn't really understand the support of the other ones. Like, I remember it was like always kind of people who, who I didn't really listen to and stuff, but that was the first time when it was like, oh, like people who I know and who I generally fuck with are like playing the tracks out. So then from there, it kind of all escalated, you know? Now, like we're, you've lived a number of lives as an, an artist. And now we are, in terms of the timeline, like getting into like 2016, 2017, you have a nice career as a DJ and a producer. You live in Berlin. You presumably pay affordable rent. You can sort of like fly around the world as a DJ. Um, but you referred to something earlier, you referred to like a, a slight disillusionment with like micro genres, whether it's like, oh, I play, I like Nicholas Lutz and I play like, you know, classy 90s tech house that nobody's ever heard of, or I'm like, or I'm, I'm like an electro DJ, etc. Like, but then you get to work on what would be your debut album, um, which came out on the venerable RNS records and the record is called colored. And 
there are themes behind that record that are much larger than what you were doing up to this point. And one of the things I wanted to speak about was like when you speak about Perlon or you speak about Bloghouse, like you think about this very European, very white sound. You did mention Seth Troxler as somebody who obviously comes from Michigan and ended up being wildly successful in Europe. What was your sense of like the roots of dance music as a black music and how did that sort of snap into focus around the time that you started to make Colored, a record that you spent two years on? Well, it was a gradual progression. I think that, you know, when you're a kid, it's easy to just be dogmatic about a lot of seemingly disparate ideas and trends and stuff like at the same time, you know what I mean? Um, So for instance, like I was very serious about piano and I was very serious about DJing and I was very serious about production. Uh, But they were all kind of like, they were disparate in my head. Like I wasn't really thinking about them on a continuum of, you know, me as an artist. I was thinking about them more as like, I was kind of a different person in each area, I guess. Um, and then I think the first steps towards me really starting to think more broadly about, I guess, the cultural, like the cultural heritage, as you said, was, I think, this very natural point of adolescence, or maybe post-adolescence is better to say, where you, I think you kind of start to reconcile a lot more about your personal sort of history. So shit that you thought was like, you know, you thought was dope when you were 14 and then you're like, oh, that's trash when you're 19 because you're 19 and you were 14 then. Then like when you're 25, it's like, oh, actually like I was also dope when I was 14. You know what I mean? Like I had good taste. Like, you know, there's a lot of bands that like I still like, I remember like, you know, downloading a bunch of La Tigra records when I was 14. And then at 19, I was like, ah, that's 14 year old me. And then recently I'm like, damn, that's a band I can like listen to still. And like, I think that like, that in general, that sort of like process started to become broader and broader. And it, it like, it started just purely individually. So I would describe it like the big thing for me at first was like realizing that my piano playing and production were the same activity in some way. Of course, not the same activity practically, but like we're on exactly the same continuum for me intellectually um, and artistically. And then I think that started opening up new connections, like where it was just like, wait, you know, the way I was DJing when I was a kid uh, and the music I was playing and like even further back, the music I was raised on, like the music I was listening to at home, uh, the music I was listening to on the radio, uh, like all of these things, I think, just started to come together as I sort of started to embrace, I guess, like my past in a bit more of a mature way and less of a kind of like move, move, move way. And, you know, I, the, the records kind of reflect that, you know, I, I, I could see as well that like the records that I was making were even if just by chance, I was just bringing something from my past or like from, let's say, like the broader um, black side of my musical interests. Those were my records, which were popping, like, you know, Soul Correction and Chronic Cool. Like those were both records which were like, drawing directly on my sense of a like a soul music and jazz music digger you know which comes from my youth like playing at b-boy battles and stuff like that so that really started to kind of like 
awaken that sensibility in me. And then when it came to do the album, it was just, it was just there. I mean, the name was there, like the concept was there. Uh, be, because I, I, I just think it's, I, I can just see how enjoyable it is for me, you know, first and foremost, to actually understand like uh, what can very easily just be a passing trend as something within like a historical continuum and like a cultural continuum. Um, and that's just something I really wanted to bring to the public, you know, not just as like some sort of, uh, I mean, honestly, it wasn't like a fundamentally like political statement. It's actually, to me, it's just an observation. Like it's just, this is just the way it is. Um, and I'm just observing that because I love that. Like, I love the fact that, you know, this music came from where it came from. And I love how it connects to the music that I was listening to on the radio, you know, when I was a kid. And I love how it connects to the music my parents were listening to on the radio when they were kids, you know? So it all kind of just came from, it started with my personal development. And then I started to kind of like extract, I think, broader conceptual ideas from that. It's it's interesting. Uh, first of all, go out and listen to Colored if you haven't done it yet. Um, it's it's an ambitious and uh, beautiful statement, and it's interesting. Some of the th themes that you were speaking about with Colored, you had a track called Jumpteenth on the record, uh, yeah. and you released the single. Was it on Juneteenth in 2019 or like, right? Yeah. Um, but, but specifically the text you use was African-Americans may deem it worthy of attention, unworthy of attention, being all too aware of the continued process of protecting our freedom. For the rest of society, it's going unnoticed. It's going unnoticed is largely attributable to simple ignorance and sadly but truly downright animosity in some cases too. In spite of that, though, it seems to me that Juneteenth would easily assume its position as one of the most important days of the year were it to be openly acknowledged for what it really is, the beginning of modern American culture. It's the real Independence Day. One year too early. I'm just joking. Yeah, you are. You, you, but no, you are. Like, and this is like part of like what's going on with like being in between and being like ahead to some extent, like, and coming from like a different perspective. Like you, what you're saying there is what happened to a moderate degree a year later. For, uh, like, obviously a lot of terrible stuff happened to like bring it to that point. But like, you're seeing something that you wrote a year early and you're seeing the world change and perhaps on some level you're seeing the world catch up and our world catch up. Do you feel like that in any way? Yeah. And I, I think, um, I mean, it was definitely a trip because I totally forgot about the text attached to that until Juneteenth this year and in a much more like, you know, just coming from like, honestly, the most sort of like, superficial place like oh it's juneteenth i released a track last year dedicated to juneteenth on juneteenth i'll just post it on juneteenth you know like that's the only reason i even saw the text again and i totally forgot about that and then i was reading it and just in the sort of like emotionally laden times of this crazy fucking year and it was like definitely it's i don't know what the the way to describe it is but it it, it was just let's just say it was a very meaningful kind of uh, realization, I guess, to just see that. It's actually, it's meaningful because it's, it's nice to see that people are thinking about it 
now. Like it really doesn't matter when I was thinking about it or when anyone else was thinking about it because there have been people thinking about it in much better and better edited ways than me uh, much longer. But like, it's just nice. It was really nice for me to kind of like uh, encounter that again outside of the grind of like making the record and like promoting the record and stuff in a context in which people have really been like switched on to the importance of this holiday, you know? And I think more broadly, like, I think people are just switched on to the realities that have made it such that that holiday hasn't been taken seriously like it should have been in the past, you know? And it's dope, you know? I I don't, like, um, I, I think that's a great thing. And, like, it's a hard time for a lot of people uh, for a lot of different reasons, but, like, I definitely will never feel anything less than positive about, like, just people generally becoming more aware of, you know, black culture and what it means for our country and the world more broadly. So, yeah, it was definitely, definitely cool to see that. Yeah, no, that's great. We we jokingly referred to it being a year early, but of course, like, these issues are timeless, and we're both happy to see them being addressed now. I wanted to ask a question related to that though like uh colored is a very musically ambidextrous record as you would expect from it being you pulling all of these uh seemingly disparate strands together like there are like beautiful kind of like solo piano pieces on the record there are dance tracks you have features um from other black musicians um without being too glib did people know what to make of this record I don't know. I mean, the interesting thing is that fans definitely, fans definitely did, you know? And like, the people who I think were predisposed to enjoying my work already, I think really felt like it was a natural culmination because I had been teasing whatever capacities I like most fully realized on that record. So for instance, like, that was the first time I've ever recorded something on like a proper kind of like piano in studio sort of situation. And for people who've never heard my music before, I think that would be like a, a wild card kind of like creative surprise. But for people who've been listening to my music before, I think that it was just kind of like, oh, finally, like we can actually hear, hear this like, you know, properly recorded, sort of fully realized as an idea. And that was basically you know, my kind of creative ambition was really just to do everything that I wanted. Like nothing was going to be like put off until the next, anytime I thought like, oh, maybe that's for, I was just like, no, just do it now, you know? So it's hard to say, like if people knew what to make of it, I think, well, I think people had a hard time with the fact that we have very narrow expectations of what music coming from black artists in expression of black artistic ideals should sound like in music. Um, so like if I was making like a Moody Man record, which I couldn't because Moody Man is a god, so full disclaimer. <laughs> um, but if I was making something like that, you know, I think that people would actually respond more naturally to that, like in connection with like the thematic sort of uh, material. 
so I think that that could be confusing for people. Um, but I also did that very consciously because I think it's very important for, you know, like I, I think empowerment of black artists, a lot of that has to do with getting rid of these kind of like monolithic style ideas, like, uh, sort of challenging the fact that we're here to like deliver a very specific nostalgic experience. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I really, I, very consciously made like a not nostalgic album. It's nostalgic for shit that I like, you know, um, but it's not nostalgic in the sense of like trying to be like, I'm not from Detroit. I'm not from Chicago. Like I'm not trying to make their music. That's just like not, it's not a good look in my opinion. So I think that that could definitely have uh, confused some people, but I think like Mostly the people who listen to it, fuck with it, honestly. Like, I mean, I think people were really happy to hear, like, uh, I think it's refreshing for people to just hear music. Like, not to say other things aren't music, but I think it's nice for people to listen to something that was made for them to listen to. And not sort of like me dressing up five 12-inch singles with like one ambient breakdown uh, with the same kind of calculus as like any other single or it's like, okay, maybe there's going to be one track, which like a lot of DJs play. Okay, cool. So that's going to like maybe get some streams or something. You know, I, I really wanted to, I really wanted to make something that I would be proud of like forever. And I'm definitely like proud of that record forever, you know, a labor of love. Yeah. As, as you should be, you said, you spoke about thinking about music monolithically and not breaking it into genres as a reflection of personal experience. Um, and you also said that the fans appreciated this record. But, you know, you could say that music genres and especially pigeonholing artists is, is something that happens a lot of times on a critical level where it's, it's music critics trying to put put an artist into a box and by saying the fans really dug the record you might be saying implicitly that like the music press didn't understand this and on june 5th you released a very eloquent video um that i personally enjoyed that led to a conversation between you and us you you and i about resident advisors statement that they posted uh after blackout tuesday in which they pledged to they pledged to donate a certain amount hire a certain amount of black writers and um really examine the equitability of coverage your attitude was like this isn't enough and it was a really interesting video that I thought a lot about, like, and I agree with a lot of it, and I don't agree with certain elements of it, but like the, the bottom line, the theme of the video is it's time for a new normal defined by black artists in an industry that benefits from their creativity. I have trouble saying that anybody would argue with that statement. I mean, not be racist or something like, like where, so, but, but tell us about like why you made that video. Well, I made that video, well, it actually, it's funny because I wasn't planning on making a video. My, my instant response to the situation was not that, but my girlfriend with whom I worked really closely on just the sort of the album as a project in terms of like bringing just the whole project together and working with my, you know, the guy who was my manager at the time and stuff. She was just like, this is just your time to say something. I mean, it's just, uh, 
if there's any time to say something, it's right now. I, I think that I've been sort of watching from a distance as the narrative about the community from which I come uh, has been monopolized by people who are not really relating to the experience uh, in a lot of cases. And I think that the intentions are very good uh, on some level. I think the intentions can also be questionable based on just the the incentives which make everything questionable these days. I mean, my incentives are questionable to myself making a video because it's going on social media. And I have some, you know, it's a, it's a fundamental conflict of interest for all of us, you know what I mean? But controlling for that, you know, I think that people focus on solutions to these issues and these perceived and real inequities with with minor aesthetic changes, you know. So the, the main things that I was really like struck by in that were, or in the RA statement, I mean, were kind of like referencing back to like, you know, one article, which something was said about like, uh, what was it like about drum and bass? Yeah. Yeah. And like, I was just thinking like, who, I was like, what black people do I know who are tripping about this? Like, and I'm, I'm sure there are some, you know, <laughs> but like, I, I don't think that that is ultimately where the issues lie here. I, I think that we have a scene that aspires very much to represent wholesome progressive ideas and like an idea about the future which will be more equitable and inclusive of everyone. The interesting thing about all of this stuff is that like I don't think there's a single racist person working at Resident Advisor. I would bet 10,000 euros on that. You know what I mean? Like I would bet any amount of money on that. I just think the odds are very good that like if you did a if whatever if there's any sort of like a psychological definition of racism, I'm positive nobody working at RA fits it, you know? But the issues at hand here are systemic. And like that doesn't put me in a paranoid headspace. Uh and I unfortunately see it putting a lot of people in a more paranoid headspace to kind of draw that conclusion. So I don't think, therefore, that everybody working at RA has some sort of hidden uh, nefarious agenda that they just don't know about. I think all of that is horseshit, honestly, and dangerous. And I wanted to bring the conversation back to what, in my opinion, matters. Like the only thing that we can actually negotiate, which is like the extent to which resident advisor as a company and resident advisor is the lightning rod because you guys are, you know, you earned it. So congratulations for being the lightning rod. There's a lot of advantages as well. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think it's really important that we talk about what we can actually talk about, like practically, which is like how are black artists being helped uh, and how much value is being added to the businesses of black artists in comparison with their white peers. I, I just think that the scene, and specifically our scene, has fallen short on that front. And I think that the best way to fix it is not to focus on psychoanalyzing minor details of peop people's like conversational word choice or like their blog posts or just like, just trash information in my opinion, you know? It's just like, who's getting the bag? Like, it's simple. I mean, for me, it's simple, at least. I don't know how you feel about it, but that was that's kind of what led me to it. I mean, for me, 
I have to admit that RA has kind of consistently felt like a glass ceiling on some level. And there's always been a feeling of kind of like jumping through hoops, thinking like, oh, like this is going to be the thing. Like, oh, I put out a label. I put out a successful record on a label on which seemingly every other successful record is reviewed. This has to be the thing where I'm going to get this kind of like coverage that I need on the most relevant platform to really just kind of like accelerate this process and kind of get my, just get my game to the next level. And it's frustrating. And I think a lot of people have had that experience. Well, I can't actually speak for other people. Based on my experience, I think that it's reflective of something that has happened historically and which I believe to be continuing to happen uh, specifically within the context of like the underground dance music scene. And I, I just think that it's important to add a new, more reasonable voice to the conversation because I don't see the current conversation leading to a real change in anything, honestly. I think it creates more, it creates more conversation. It creates more information. It creates another person to get sort of like criticized for their misstep or this. And, and it's just like at a certain point, it's like we're an industry, we're a business, we're professionals. We need to like talk about this shit like that, you know, not like we're like message board uh, participants, you know. <laughs> so that was basically the um, that's kind of what motivated me. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the background and explanation. And, you know, just as a response, like, you and I know each other as people. I am in this position now where I suppose I'm speaking for resident advisor, but you know that I have my own ideas and that I'm my own person. I just happen to work. Yeah, that this is my job. I work for RA in Los Angeles. And luckily, it gives me the chance to talk you and engage with these ideas. Um, my response generally, you said we don't need editorial coverage, we need economic empowerment. It's a simple statement on the surface, but it's actually like a complex idea. And what I'm saying is this, there is, RA does events and occasionally we pay fees. And you met me at an RA event where the two headliners were black headliners, but that is not what you're talking about. You're talking about a sustained support from the publication, which comes from supporting an artist over the course of like an EP and an album cycle and really getting to know that artist, revealing their story um, with a feature, with a podcast, with an exchange like that, and then sort of ushering them into uh, bigger bookings, increased visibility that would, at that point, you know, result in a career that's potentially sustainable. Is that is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I think um, the economic, the real economic influence that RA has uh, in my mind, I mean, it is an, it's an interesting cornering of the market. I think it's unique in the music business to have such a relevant press platform uh, in tandem with like such a relevant ticket selling platform. Uh, so it's it's new terrain to navigate. I don't know of anybody else doing that on a business level. Uh, I don't. You might know some examples that I'm not aware of, but I think that 
it creates a situation with the underground dance music scene where the only relevant press, and I'm sorry to say to every, everybody else, but you know, the only, the only real relevant press channel to the, this extent, at least in my eyes, is RA. Uh, and I, I think that RA has demonstrated the power that it has over many of the most kind of noteworthy careers that have sort of skyrocketed since RA's tenure as kind of like this head honcho of the underground dance music press. And I think if we really like look at the people who have benefited the most from that wholehearted support, I I, I just, I think that there's a big disparity with what kind of um, representation we would expect for a, for a scene that's come from the black community. And I think it's the answer to a lot of our, it's, it's more complex than just like a basic affirmative action plan in my mind. You know, I think that before, you know, the COVID thing, I think a lot of people had a sense that something was weird. Like it, there was just something a little bit over, just overdone, a little bit kind of unsustainable, let's say. That's a better, that's the best word for it. Or there was a bubble going on, perhaps. I think there was. And I think that people realized on some level that parties were happening more than ever. But why are we getting less great music, for instance? Like, there's way more DJs, way less producers. There's way more sort of, like, work and seemingly less quality work. And it it kind of started feeling, at least to me, and I... from some of the people with whom I've talked about this, it it did start feeling like a bubble. And I think a lot of people, granted, in any subculture, people will always have some sense of it was better 10 years ago. Uh, You know what I mean? But I think that the main point is that for this musical style and this musical culture, uh, the the beautiful musical culture uh, through which we've had the privilege of having this conversation or interacting, through which I've had the privilege of meeting almost every friend I have, and I'm sure it's very similar for you. Like, for that to be sustainable, it has to be connected with its past. It just has to be, in my mind. And that's not always as simple as, okay, you put this many black people in the in the spotlight and then everything is fixed. There is some side of it, which is probably has to be applied about that superficially to work. But I think it's really much more of a case of just realizing the narrative disparity between black artists and white artists of a comparable talent level and quality level. Because for a lot of artists, in my opinion, the biggest, biggest difference in their career is just having their story told. You know, like if the music is dope and like if someone is accumulating a following even of DJs. I mean, like if all the DJs are playing someone's records consistently, that person is worthy of as kind of profoundly told of a story as anyone. And I think that just that sort of logic applied would already sort of solve a lot of representation issues, honestly. Because I I just think we have some weird, we just have some weird kind of double standards. Uh, We talked about this briefly in our uh, follow-up conversation to me putting out that video. But I mean, 
I look at someone like DJ Dion or something, and we we've like kind of created. I mean, he reps his genre as well, so I'm not knocking that. Like, but he's typecast in this like ghetto house genre, uh, whatever that means to people. And somehow, to me, that prevents his work from being acknowledged for what it is, which is just like some of the most timeless and effective dance music ever composed. Uh, there, there's something about it where we we don't treat that like a composition. We don't treat it like uh, someone who we need to really follow up with. I feel like there's a lot of figures, both from the older generation and the younger generation, who we treat more like something that is just there to kind of be observed, but not necessarily there to be followed up with. And that follow-up is 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 key, you know what I mean? Like the people who I see thriving the most, and you can say that it's like just correlation and that it's not causation, but like pretty across pretty much across the board, like the the large majority of people who are making interesting dance music and succeeding at the highest level. Uh, have a pretty consistent narrative built editorially with RA, in my opinion. There are some exceptions, of course. Like there's some like uh, there's some music which is just like not even a part of this conversation, but it's like surprisingly close to, you know, the music that we like. <laughs> but you know, just within with regards to this niche of kind of like quality and sort of whatever, I think that there's definitely like a representation issue to be addressed. But like, it's not. It's not represented in like grammatical choice or word choice or like it's just as simple as telling that story because the story is already dope. And like on a business level, people want to hear from black people. I mean, it's just I think that people like uh, certain industries can get into this, uh, get stuck in a rut where they, they feel like what people want generally is like maybe a palatable version of the black experience or something that's like maybe black enough to work with black people, but maybe it's like uh, whatever enough to work with everybody else. And in reality, like it seems like across the board, people are just down. Like people want to see what's coming out of the black community yesterday, you know? And I think that that channel is just what needs to be opened and it needs to be maintained. And I think that that is ultimately what I took issue with, where I, I think we we get focused and distracted on bullshit, honestly, all the time. Like, I don't give a fuck about Nina Kravitz's hair. I thought it was kind of dope, honestly. Like, and I, I just don't like, I don't want to hear about that shit. Like, not when there's people who could be, like, that same spot could be used to review a record from a black artist. I mean, so, like, I don't want to hear about, like, uh, someone's affronts, like, minor or, like, microaggressions. I don't know. Like, I don't, to me, that, that that's not making black people money. So, like, I don't care. And that's just, for me, it's, it's, it's not even so much about, like, uh, my main priority with that video was to reorient the conversation around variables and goals, which I think have a lot more potency uh, and a lot more sustainability than continuing to kind of feed this like paranoid frenzy search for mistakes. Because I just find that shit boring. 
I don't think good music comes from it. And like, I'm just tired of hearing it. So I, I, I really appreciate you sort of putting us on notice, but in a charitable way where you're like, this is an ongoing discussion. And I, I think that you're very astute in your reading of this situation. And um, you've given me a lot to think about. And I think that I was looking for this quote while we were speaking um, from uh, Nas, who is a West Coast rap journalist who owned a store called Park Boulevard Records. But, you know, this is a white journalist and record store owner who is extremely versed in stuff like Bay Area rap and stuff like this. And and, and one of the one of the things he said was like any good journalist, like any any good piece is a writer trying to understand something different than them or a different experience from theirs and like yeah like I, I think that basically what you're saying is like value these stories value stories that are different than yeah I was from London I moved to Berlin I met some people I became a big DJ bought some stuff like I got the big studio and like I mean I I'm honestly man there's a lot of stuff like just that I think can come out of just harnessing the permanent power of the source of all of this creativity that we're all building on. You know, like I'm, I'm black and I'm indebted to the, the black community as well. I mean, it's not like, like we can all sort of um, appreciate this shit on the same level. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm really, really not in the business of, divisiveness or exclusion like I, I don't look at this as like my chance to get retribution for my uh the grievances and i think that honestly like i'm okay with everybody doing their thing but like i don't find that enjoyable like i wouldn't want to have that conversation with you on those terms and as a friend or as a professional i mean it's just not like i find that shit honestly super boring and like this music is the reason i mean my parents like a mixed race couple like they would not have given birth to me if it weren't for black music like it's not sort of like like it's the music that brought our country together and you know as a consequence i think it's the music that or let's say not as a consequence but for the same reasons i think it's sort of become the music that's the most relevant in the whole world it's really like the soundtrack to our globalized international life you know for people all over the world and i think that shit is beautiful and i think that's more politically effective intellectually interesting and artistically productive than any fucking like obsessive compulsive search for uh, other people's mistakes like i'm just like not in i think like what i didn't like about the statement is not that it was made it's just that like it can be better and like, I just thought it was important that someone said like, hey, we need to like, we need, we just need better ideas. Like we deserve better ideas. We deserve better music, better ideas, more fun, more sort of like togetherness, less sort of um, just yelling at each other and like uh, less petitions, less fucking just all of it. It's, it's like, it's, I think it's really time to just approach this stuff a bit more pragmatically, except where we're at as an industry, which is like, very profitable. We've got a lot of resources. We've got a lot of interesting, smart people. It wouldn't be possible without 
white guys like you as well. Like, it's just, we need everyone. Like, everybody who's good at this shit, we need involved if we want to turn this into something better. And, like, I think that that's a collective goal that is served immensely by tapping into the creativity from which the entire project started. And I think this is just a moment where we need to really, like, bring it full circle. And... I think it's going to be dope, honestly. Like, as I said, like, I'm an optimist. Like, I'm not here tripping about, like, uh, like I said, I don't think there's a single person. I don't, I've never met a racist in the dance music world, honestly. Like, I've never met someone who's, like, uh, at a party. Racists are, like, they're at, they're at home most of the time. You know what I mean? They're not coming to the club, as far as I know. Or maybe I just haven't met them, or I don't know. But, like, that's not the level on which I'm interested in engaging with this scene, like hunting for racists. Like how boring does that sound, honestly? Like we should be trying to find a way to just make our scene even more creative and contribute even better work to society, to continue to bring society together and to continue to make the world a better place, like with really good ideas and really just I think just very simple ideas, like for me it's a very simple concept, like uh, great music brings people together. It always has. So like how do we get more great music? And to be honest, if people aren't making great music, I don't give a fuck what they think about anything if they're talking in the music press. So that's kind of like, uh, that's just where I'm at with it. And I think like the most sustainable way I can imagine to do that is just to get resources to different, just different voices. I mean, it doesn't have to be all black people either. There is something to be said for just bringing as many different voices into the mix as possible, but we should get more black people as well, yeah.